Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 is where we are going to be this morning. We are studying the parables of our Lord. Last week we studied the Good Samaritan, a very famous, well-known parable. We, we got to dive in maybe a little bit deeper than we've gone before to see the question that the lawyer had asked and Jesus' response to that question, which really isn't an answer to that question at all. He asks a very different question with a different motivation. We saw grace on display and And because we saw grace on display and the love of Jesus on display last week, I I thought we would go deeper into that issue of grace. What is grace? What's the opposite of grace? The reality is, we as a people are very quick to perceive when we are treated less than we think we deserve. We are a people very quick to perceive that. I, I think that I should have been treated a little bit better than they just treated me. Just think about children. I have never once had to sit my kids down and tell them, there's a phrase that you're going to want to know. You're going to want to have this in your vocabulary as human beings living in a fallen world. And it's a phrase called, that's not fair. And I want to teach you those words. I want to teach you what they mean. I want to teach you their appropriate context. Let me give you some scenarios as to where you would fit that phrase in. I don't need to teach my kids any of that. My kids just know, hey, that's not fair. Ethan got something, well, that's not fair that I didn't get it. I want that. There's a whole way of looking at the world which makes your life and the life of those around you incredibly miserable. And it's our sense of entitlement. Entitlement makes your life miserable and makes others around you miserable. Why? It's because it minimizes the gravity and the amazement that we should feel at the generosity of others. And at the grace of God. It minimizes the gravity and the amazement that we should feel of the generosity that others have given and of the grace of God. This parable that Jesus gives that we will be studying this morning is a parable given to display the grace of God and to shatter our concept of entitlement. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 20 verse 1. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard and he went out about the third hour and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give it to you. And so they went again. He went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the exact same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said, because we haven't had anyone to hire us. So he said to them, you too, go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and he said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. 
Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as I gave to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Father, I pray that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. This is the gospel. This is grace on display. We are all a prideful people. There's no one in this room that does not need to hear this message. We all need to be broken by grace. We need to be humbled by grace. And we need our sense of entitlement stripped away and destroyed. And grace is exactly what can do that. So, Father, be pleased to work in us humility, Christ-like grace, Christ-like character, by the power of your word and according to the power of the Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This parable is unfair. You read this parable and you're instantly, viscerally hit with the unfairness of this parable. This is a difficult parable. It's so difficult that there are interpreters that say, it's so unfair and it seems so wrong that we're just going to make it seem to say something else. So they say, okay, the master knew that the people that he hired at the beginning of the day uh, actually took a bunch of coffee breaks. So he actually was paying them equal to the amount that they worked. So it's not unfair because the people that he brought on with one hour to go worked as hard as they possibly could. It's not unfair. No, they're missing the whole point of this. Some people say the denarius that was given to the people that came later in the day was a bronze denarius. And in the middle of the day, it was a silver denarius. And in the beginning of the day, it was a gold denarius. First of all, there's no such thing. Second of all, that's missing the point of this story. This story is intentionally difficult. Jesus is the master storyteller. He's making a point with an intentionally difficult parable. So what's the point? Well, to understand the point, we need to understand the context. Then we'll look at the parable, and then we'll look at the main lessons learned from the parable. So those will be our three main points for our outline this morning. Let's look at the context, let's look at the parable, and let's look at the lessons learned. The context is a very familiar context to us all. Matthew 19, verse 16, somebody comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit and obtain and earn eternal life? The rich young ruler. Now, this is the exact same question that the lawyer asked of Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan. What must I do? And that's why Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan said, You can't do anything good enough because you're not good enough. You're missing the whole point. Jesus says the exact same thing to the rich young ruler. You remember the story. You need to keep all the commandments. Love God, love people. Uh, the rich young ruler says, I've done all of those things since my youth. Jesus says, fine, one more thing you lack. Go sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, and you can follow me and have eternal life. He goes away sad because he loves something. Jesus is proving to the rich young ruler, you don't truly love God uh, when you love your possessions more than you love God. Jesus says, verse 23, uh, chapter 19, verse 23, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, that's specifically designed for rich people, but it's not that riches themselves are difficult. It's that a greedy heart fed by riches uh, trusts in himself, herself, doesn't love Jesus, doesn't trust in Jesus, isn't satisfied by Jesus. So the disciples say, this is very difficult. Who can be saved? Verse 25. And Jesus says, with people, verse 26, this is impossible. With people, no one can earn salvation. It's impossible for people to be good enough to obtain salvation on their own merit. But, we're not hopeless, with God all things are possible. So it's impossible for humans to make it to heaven on their own deserving, but with God, all things are possible. What should the disciples' response have been? Their response should have been, wait a second, Jesus has promised that we are entering into the kingdom. We are followers of God. And he just said nobody can do that on their own. So this is a gracious gift that with God all things are possible. He's made it possible for us to follow him. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. But instead... Our favorite disciple, Peter, speaks up and says in verse 27, Behold, look. Hey, Jesus, I've got something for you. Look at this. We've left everything and followed you. Why does he say that? Who just said, I'm not going to leave everything and follow you? The rich young ruler. The rich young ruler just said, nope, I can't do that. I don't want to leave everything. I have my things. I love my things. I'm not going to follow you. And Peter says, hey, we did it. You told him to leave everything. He didn't do it, but you told us to leave everything. Become fishers of men. We did that. So what's our prize? What's our reward? He says, what then will there be for us? Jesus said, truly, I say to you that you have followed me. And you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But he doesn't end there. He says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You notice he concludes the parable with that statement. The very end of this parable, he says, the first will be last, the last will be first. So this is the bookend statement. This is the crux statement. The first will be last, the last will be first. What does that mean? We find that many other places in Scripture. Um, Sometimes, like Mark chapter 9, verse 35, it's a command to humility. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, then be humble and serve. If you want to be first, then be humble and be last. But that's not what this is. This isn't a command to humility. This is an indicative statement of reality. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is going to give us a parable to define what that means. So we have our context. Rich young ruler, what good thing can I do? I'm good enough to earn heaven. Jesus says, you are not good enough to earn heaven. Peter, in essence, says, I've done things that are good enough to get to heaven. I have left everything. Look at what I've done. Don't I get a reward? And Jesus says, to a certain degree you get a reward, but getting to heaven, inheriting the kingdom, is only possible with God. With God, all things are possible. With man, nothing is possible. So getting to heaven, you will get rewards, and everybody else who gets to heaven 
by God's grace, we'll get rewards as well. And he says, for the last will be first, the first will be last. What does that mean? He gives us a story. Number two, the parable. We've got our context. Now let's look at the story. Verse one, the kingdom of heaven. And you note that word for that's connecting verse 30 to verse one. Remember, the divisions of chapters and verses is not in the original. This is just going on and on. This is connected. So the first will be last. The last will be first for because this is what the kingdom is like. It's like a landowner. Literally in the Greek, it's the ruler of a house. He owns land. He owns a house. He owns a mansion. And he goes out early in the morning. Early in the morning is probably 6 a.m. when the 12-hour workday started. So people would work from sunup to sundown, so 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Goes out at 6 a.m., very early in the morning, to hire laborers for his vineyard. These are day laborers. These are day workers. I think of like pictures and images and video that I've seen from like Great Depression type things where there's a lot of people that don't have work that are standing at the docks that are just waiting for somebody to say, hey, can you come get this net? Hey, can you come load this package? Hey, can you come help me with something? That's what these day laborers are doing. They're just waiting for work. They don't have a job, but they have their lives and possibly the lives of their family and their children to take care of. So they need work. And he agrees, verse 2, with the laborers. He strikes a deal with them. He agrees for a denarius for the day. You work for my, for my field, you work for my house for a day, and I will give you a denarius. Now, a denarius is a day's wage, but it's a day's wage for a, a good worker. Uh, like a Roman soldier would get a denarius a day. It's a day's wage for a good job. This isn't a day's wage for a day laborer. A denarius is way above and beyond what a normal day laborer would receive. In fact, you could lobby with the day laborers. Will you work for one denarius? Yes. Will you work for half a denarius? Sure, I'll take anything I can get. So typically, day laborers were not getting a lot of money. But this man says, I'll give you a denarius for the day. That's huge. That's striking the jackpot. This is great. Denarius comes from a a Latin word means 10, because the original value of the coin was equal to the worth of 10 donkeys, buying 10 donkeys. So that's where denarius comes from. This is a great wage. They're excited. And they, they are sent into the vineyard. Verse 3, the master goes out again. This time about the third hour. That would be the third hour from the early in the morning. So we've gone from 6, three hours later would be 9, 9 a.m., goes out in the third hour and sees others that are standing idle in the marketplace. They're not idle as far as laziness is concerned. They just have not been given work. And we're going to read that when we get to these others that are standing idle in verse 7. They're not living paycheck to paycheck. Those of us who have lived paycheck to paycheck know that moment when your palms start to get a little sweaty, you start to bead some sweat on your forehead, and you're wondering, are we going to make it to the end of the month? This isn't paycheck to paycheck. This is day to day. If they don't work today, they can't buy food to eat and to take care of their family tomorrow. So if they don't work today and get money, they're not going to be able to eat tomorrow. This is crucial. And yet nobody's given them work. And he sees, verse 3, others standing in the marketplace. I just want to remind us of the Good Samaritan. He saw the man and he he felt compassion for him. This man sees, and if we can put the Good Samaritan into this passage, which I think we can, feels compassion for these day laborers. And he says to them, verse 4, You also go into the vineyard, 
Notice what he says. Whatever is right, I will give to you. I'm not going to be unfair to you. And notice, they just go. They don't say, hang on, let's write up a contract. You need to promise us money. No. Why? Well, two reasons. Number one, we'll take anything we can get. As long as we're working and you're giving us something, we'll be happy. Number two, perhaps they know this man. Perhaps they've seen him in the marketplace. Perhaps other people have worked for him before and they know this guy treats people fairly. Go, out, go with him. When he says, whatever is right, I'll give it to you, he is being true to his word. He, he will pay you righteously. He's an honorable man. So, verse 4, they did so. No questions asked, they went. Verse 5, again, the master went out about the sixth and the ninth hour. That would be noon and three o'clock, respectively. So, he's going out during the day, finding workers. He does the exact same thing here. Verse 6, about the 11th hour he went, the 11th hour would be 5 p.m., one hour before the workday is over. And he found others standing around, and he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? That's not a rebuke, that's an honest question. In verse 7, they answer, because no one's hired us. It's not that we're lazy or unqualified. Everybody who has... A job that they need done, they've already gotten workers to do it. We're going to go hungry tomorrow. It doesn't say this in the text, but I just, with some sanctified imagination, I wonder if this man doesn't even need their help. We've got an hour until closing time here, right? We're, we're done with the day. I don't think the master needs their help at all. But I think he feels compassion on them and says, come work for an hour. Just work. Just come do something. I want to take care of you. When evening comes, verse 8, the owner says to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning, this is crucial, with the last group to the first. So we're going to flip it around. So the guy who came at the 11th hour is going to receive his wage first, and then the people that were there at the very beginning of the day are last in line, watching all of the money be handed out. What happens? Verse 9, when those hired about the 11th hour came... Each one received a denarius. They worked one hour and they received a full day's wage. They worked one twelfth of the day. So picture this line. Picture the people in the back of the line. You're standing in the back of the line and you see that the man who worked for one hour receives a whole day's wage. If you were there at the beginning of the day, logically, what would you conclude? I'm going to receive more. We're going to be very mathematical here. I'm going to receive 12 denarius because he received one for working one twelfth of the day. I'm going to get 12. One per hour, apparently, this master is giving out his money. When those hired, verse 10, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Of course they did. But each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. Their joy in the back of the line, when they get up in the front of the line, instantly turns to anger. This is unfair. We were going to hit the jackpot. We were in the back thinking, we're going to get 12 days wages. And now you only gave us one? They grumble. It's a great Greek word. Uh, guzmo. 
Uh, it's an onomatopoeic word. Just grumbling. They're angry. And if we're honest, the first 23 times I read this, I was angry too. This is not fair. What do they say? Verse 12. These last men have worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. You have made them equal to us. We're not equal. We deserve more. Remember Peter's question? Hey, we've left everything. The the rich young ruler, he didn't leave anything. But we did exactly what you told us to do. We're going to get more, right? We deserve more because we are doing what you're telling us to do. And these words are the words that Peter is thinking, is feeling in his heart. Wait, 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 wait. The the last workers in this line, they deserve more. They earn more. But the landowner is going to answer with three amazing questions. They're very brief. Nobody really answers them because they kind of cut you down to size. The first question is in verse 13. But he answered and he said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Question number one, did you not agree with me for a denarius? You're calling me unfair, but am I not giving you exactly what we bargained for? Exactly what I promised you? I'm not giving you anything less than what we talked about. I'm true to my word. I didn't break a promise. I didn't lie. I wasn't unfaithful. And in fact, if you remember, me promising to give you a denarius is over and above what you should actually get. I am still being generous to you. That's the first question. Verse 14, take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this to this last man the same as to you. I want to give it to him. I was very generous to you. I didn't break my word to you. I gave you exactly what I promised. And it's even more than you really deserve. And I just want to be generous with this man. Second question, verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish to do with what is my own? Am I not allowed to do what I want to do with what belongs to me? This is my money. The workers are complaining about their rights. And the master answers, wait, who here has rights? You are under my benevolence. I'm taking care of you. I have the right to do what I want to do with my money. And if I want to be gracious to people, I can be gracious to them. Or, uh, number three, the third question, or is your eye envious? Or some translation, has it become evil because I am generous? That means your eye has become jealous and envious. We even use that phrase, having an evil eye, wanting something that somebody has. Is your eye evil? Is it envious because I am generous? At the beginning of the day, you were thrilled that I was going to promise you and give to you a Daenerys. That was the jackpot. But now, because you compare it with others, you see with your evil eye, an envy and a jealousy that makes you completely ungrateful for that which you were thrilled about receiving at the very beginning of the day. So, this concludes the parable. Jesus says, The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Instead of saying, Why am I not getting more? Which is what these workers are saying. They should have said, 
why am I getting so much? This man promised me a denarius when really I didn't even work that much to receive that. They should have asked, why are you so gracious to other people? You're an amazingly gracious man. But they're stuck on why am I not getting more? What does Jesus mean when he says the first will be last and the last shall be first? It's the bookend. Remember chapter 19, verse 30? Many who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. In this parable, we know clearly what it means. Those who start at the beginning will finish at the end. Think of a race. And those who start at the end will finish at the beginning. So if you think of people starting at the very beginning of the race and going as fast as they can, they're going to wind up at the end. And if you think of those waiting to start the race and then skipping ahead, what's going to happen? They're all going to hit the finish line at the exact same time. I believe that's clearly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying we all make it in a dead heat at the very end. We all cross the finish line at the exact same time. But there is one thing to note at the beginning of the bookend in verse 30. Chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. James Montgomery Boyce makes a point to say that's a different qualifier. Many. There are some who start the race, who believe that following Jesus is what you need to do to get to heaven, but they think that by their own doing they can get to heaven. So they start, but they won't even make it. Jim Boyce says last means they don't even cross the finish line. They don't even make it into heaven because they never started the true race following Jesus by his grace alone. Now, I don't think that that is a wrong principle. Maybe it doesn't fit in this context because clearly we know the last statement that Jesus makes of the first will be last, the last will be first, according to this parable, is just everybody is going to get the exact same thing when they cross the finish line. But when we studied the parable of the soils, we know that there were people that sprang up faster than even the good soil, right? They started the race, as it were. They sprang up, they started growing fruit, but then they died. They withered away. I think that Jim Boyce has a point to say, Jesus is telling the disciples, hey, there are some of you, even in the group of disciples, that started the race with me, that aren't even going to be able to finish it. They're not even going to make it to heaven. And Judas, obviously, is one of those. What does this parable mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, we're all going to hit the finish line at the exact same time? I'm giving the same amount of money to different workers at different time frames. Does it mean, as some people have, have concluded, that there are no, no rewards in heaven? No. The Bible is very clear. There are rewards in heaven. Even Jesus just told his disciples there are rewards. Verse 28 of chapter 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, those who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also get to sit with me. You're going to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. So it's not saying that there are no rewards for faithfulness. What it's saying is that grace can never be earned. Grace can never be earned. So here's what I want to do. I want to do something a little different than we normally do. This parable is incredibly straightforward. It's very clear. We don't have to spend too much time diving deeper into the text. What we have to do is spend time asking, so what? And as I was working through this passage, there were ten things that just clearly stood out to me as far as lessons learned from this parable. And so what I want to do is spend the rest of our time looking at these ten things that this parable clearly teaches us about God, about us, about the grace that God has given to us. So we've seen the context. We have our parable. 
Now, number three, let's look at the lessons learned. And just for our own sanity, we put these, we're going to put these up on the screen so that you have them as we walk through them together so that you can write them down. You'll see all ten. They'll be there for you so that you won't miss them. Lessons learned. Number one, grace is not earned. Grace is not earned. Peter thought that grace was a reward for the righteous. Jesus is teaching grace is a gift for the guilty. Grace is not given to people who have earned it. Grace, by its very definition, is unmerited favor. It's undeserved favor. So you can't earn it. We, we love the phrase sovereign grace, right? We talk about sovereign grace a lot. We love that phrase. And I praise the Lord for the work that he's done in bringing that phrase back into the church. But if we really think about it, that's a, a bit redundant. Sovereign grace. That God is the one who sovereignly ordains and graciously gives us a gift. It's, it's redundant because you cannot have grace that is not sovereign. You can't have grace that is earned by the merit of another. You have to have grace dispensed graciously by the hand of a sovereign. And this parable is teaching that grace can never be earned by anyone. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Paul writes, In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, through His blood and His grace, which He lavished on us all. Everybody received it. There's nobody that needed more grace than other people. Like, I need a little, you know, 10% worth of grace, but I've got 90% of it figured out myself. No, all of us, on equal, level ground, we all deserve wrath, and we've all been graciously forgiven. Note, in this parable, even the denarius that is given to the day laborers is more than they even earned. The denarius is the day's wage for a a high-end job. And what they are doing as day laborers is not a high-end job. And so what we see here is the denarius given even to the man who worked from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. is still far too generous, still has a gift inside of it. The day laborer can't say, I earned every single penny of this denarius. The day laborer says, man, this is still hitting the jackpot. That guy was gracious to give this to me. One pastor says it this way, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you receive the full benefits of God's innumerable grace, just like everybody else in the kingdom. Your place in heaven is not a timeshare where your access is determined by the length of time you spend doing the Lord's work. The blessings of redemption are not doled out in quotas based on a person's achievements. Forgiveness is not measured by weighing our good deeds against our sins, nor is it partially withheld if we have sinned for too long or too badly. Everyone who enters the kingdom of God receives the full abundance of God's grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. God gives grace, and it is never earned. It can never be earned. Number two, God initiates salvation. Just think about these day laborers. They're standing there waiting for the the mercy of somebody to come and to call them to work. They haven't given out job applications. They're not giving out their resumes. They're just standing there. And they're at the mercy of somebody to come along and call them. God is the one who initiates. The master initiates calling these day laborers to work in his fields. It isn't because of the workers themselves, 
that they are able to receive the denarius, it's because of the gracious call of the master. Number three, God calls sinners not the self-sufficient. Remember the context here. Peter said, we've done things for you. And Jesus says, I I didn't call you because you can do things. I called you because I'm gracious. Remember Jesus himself said, I'm come as a doctor as a physician to take care of the sick, not the healthy. Notice who is not involved in this story at all. Anybody who has a job. Anybody who says, look, I don't need anybody's help. I'm not at the mercy of anybody. I have my own job. Thank you very much. Only those bankrupt in their heart saying, I have nothing to offer. I don't have any job spiritually that can merit salvation. I have no money to offer God to get into heaven whether physical money or spiritual money. I've got nothing. And so I'm standing there on the docks, as it were, in the middle of the greatest depression of all, where sin has destroyed anyone's potential of getting to heaven on their own good works. And I'm saying, will somebody have mercy on me? Only those who are standing there saying, will somebody have mercy, are those who are given the gracious gift of working in the vineyard. God calls sinners not the self-sufficient. This is an incredibly challenging paradigm to understand. The very next section of Scripture, James and John's mom asks Jesus, hey, they're awesome. Can they sit on your right and your left in the kingdom? Because they're pretty amazing. And Jesus had just said, they were day laborers waiting at the docks for work. They didn't have any work. They were bankrupt. And yet, how quickly do we move from knowing our need for a Savior to saying, I got it. I got this figured out. We should never get beyond grace. Number four, God is in debt to no one. God is in debt to no one. This is Jesus' second question as the master in this parable. Uh, Am I not allowed to do what I choose to do with what belongs to me? I'm not in debt to you. And yet, how often do we think that somehow we've done something that makes God have to treat us a certain way? R.A. Torrey, a very well-known pastor, tells the story of this. He had been preaching on prayer and one sermon, one Sunday after a sermon, uh, there was an anonymous note that was left at his pulpit. And it said this, Dear Mr. Torrey, I'm in great perplexity. I have been praying for a long time for something that I'm confident is God is according to God's will, but I'm not getting it. I have been a member of the church for 30 years and I've tried to be be consistent, uh, be a consistent member all that time. I've been superintendent in the Sunday school for 25 years. I've been an elder in the church for 20 years. And yet God does not answer my prayer and I cannot understand why. Can you explain it to me? Tori used this at the very next sermon. And he gave this as an example. And he said, whoever wrote that note, I'll answer you. I'll tell you why you're not getting your prayer request answered. He said this. Whoever you are, you think that because you have been a consistent church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in the church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer your prayer. So you are really praying in your own name and God will never hear our prayers when we approach him that way. We must, if we would have God answer our prayers, 
give up on any thought that we have any claims upon God. There is not one of us who deserves anything from God. Do you really believe that? There is not one of us who deserves anything from God. He is in debt to no one. He's the potter. We are the clay. The kingdom operates not according to our labors, but according to his mercy. It operates not according to our accomplishments, but according to his generosity. And yet, how often do we think, you know, I I do really deserve this. I mean, I know it's grace, but I, I have really tried hard. I really deserve this. God tells us, whatever you have, it's a gift. It's grace. Just write down Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 17. We don't have time to go there. But Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 17, God tells the people of Israel, you need to remember that everything that I've given to you as a gracious gift is a gift. And he says, you're going to forget that. And when you forget that, you're going to forget me, and you're going to forget that you need me, and you're going to become self-sufficient, and you're going to deny me. We do the same thing. How often do we have an IRS relationship with our God? If I do enough good things this year, I'll get a bit of a break. God will look at my deductions and I'll be blessed. Because I did good things in his name. Sometimes we use that to say, okay, God, you're allowing me to go through a trial. I'll do some good things so that you have to take that trial away. But the reality is we always make life worse when we wear these glasses of entitlement. We always make life worse when we wear those glasses. Look at what I've done, God. You owe it to me. Number five, God gives the same abundant grace to all who follow Jesus. God gives the same abundant grace to all who follow Jesus. Whether you get in at the last second like the thief on the cross, or whether you have been following Jesus like Peter did since the moment that he called you early on in life, God gives the same abundant grace to everyone who follows him. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 17. We all are heirs of God and we are joint heirs with Christ. Every single believer receives the exact same inheritance. And that's an infinite inheritance from God himself. Part of the application of this parable for the disciples would have been the grafting in of the Gentiles. If you think about the disciples, we have most being... Uh, good Israelite Jews, and then it's going to expand, moving into uh, the kingdom, ushering in Gentiles, grafting in Gentiles. And it would be easy for the Jews to think, and we know biblically that they did, wait, 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 we have a history of following God. We've been with him from the very beginning. We are God's chosen people, thank you very much, so we deserve a better seat at the table for our longevity of following him. And who are you, Gentile people, that you would just waltz right in? Fine, okay, we'll allow you entrance into the kingdom of heaven, but you're not getting the same rewards that we're getting. And God in this parable and elsewhere in the New Testament says, no, no, you all get the same thing. Jew and Gentile, gone. You're one in Christ. One application for us as a church is how quickly do we bring visitors in our church to a place where they feel like they belong here as our church family? I've never heard it at our church. By God's grace, we'll never hear it. But sometimes, people have a sense of entitlement. Well, I was here the day that the church was planted. I've been here from the very beginning. You're a visitor. I know the ropes here. I know my way here. 
I'm closer in the family and you're an outsider. And this parable says, nope. Once somebody is a believer, they're ushered in, they're a part of our fellowship, we've all graciously been received in the body of Christ. And God gives the same grace abundantly to all who follow him. Number six, just a couple more. God cares for people more than he cares for things. This parable teaches us that God cares for people more than he cares for things. He gives graciously of his money to help those in need. He's not thinking of making a profit. He's thinking of people. Showing up at the 11th hour saying, hey, come with me, I'll give you a denarius. He's not thinking about, oh, I need to get this project done. I need to make sure everything's done and do it on, on a good budget here. He's saying, I lavish my love and my grace. And, and in my sanctified imagination, he didn't even need their help. He just says, I want to give you money. Come, just hold a hammer for a couple minutes. Just do something. Be here. I just want to give you a denarius. Number seven, God is sovereign in the outworking of salvation. God is sovereign in the outworking of salvation. Is there somebody in your life that you think, man, they are never, ever going to come to Jesus? It has been years that I've been praying for. I've shared with them. I've tried. I've been praying. This parable tells us there are going to be many people that come into the kingdom at the 11th hour. So don't give up hope. God's sovereign in the outworking of salvation in the timing. It's very different. Don't give up hope. Number eight, God always keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. This was his question, the first question, in answer to the grumpy, grumbling workers. Did you not agree with me for denarius? We made an agreement for denarius. I'm not unfair. I, I was true to my word. I didn't break my promise. I didn't lie. I'm fair. Sometimes we get angry at God because we think that he hasn't kept his word. What has God promised to us? Has God promised that we would be rich? No, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel here. I don't think the Bible teaches it. God does not promise riches and wealth. God promises he'll provide. But what does he promise that he'll provide? Do you remember Matthew chapter 6? I'll take care of your clothes. I'll take care of your food. And I'll take care of your shelter. That's all you need. He didn't promise us a mansion. He didn't promise us a hundred pairs of Nikes. He's promising us, I will meet your need. I'll provide. But when we have this sense of entitlement that, wait, I need more. And God doesn't meet our expectations. We think less of God. He's not being unfair. He's not being unfaithful. And yet we question the fairness of God's dispensing of grace. God says, I'm going to give to all my grace. I'm going to give to everyone as I desire. One pastor says it this way, God treats no one unfairly, but he does deal with many far more leniently than they deserve. He always keeps his promises. Number nine, God is always giving us more than we deserve. God always gives us more than we deserve. We think that we deserve better than we have received, and that betrays that we forget what we truly do deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve wrath. We deserve instantaneous wrath. God should snuff us out of existence and take us to hell and judge us for all of eternity. And yet, when we start comparing ourselves to others and wondering, wait, why are they getting that? I want that. Remember, if there had been no other workers... 
In this parable, if those first workers at the beginning of the day had been the only workers, they would have gone to the master at the end of the day, gotten their denarius, and kissed this man. They would have hugged him and said, thank you so much. You're providing for my family for days. You've taken care. You've given me more than I deserve. Thank you for lavishing grace upon me. When does their perception change? When you add more people into the mix. They start comparing. We throw comparisons all the time and become entitled. Wait, I'm doing a better job at life than they are. Why are they getting something? We become jealous, envious, prideful. This happens so many times with trials and with blessings. With trials, wait, hang on, God, I don't deserve this. And with blessings, wait, you're blessing somebody else? I deserve that blessing. Hang on, let's swap here because they get the blessing, I get the trial. This is not fair. But if we consider that we deserve nothing, actually we deserve worse than nothing, we deserve only punishment then when we wake up in the morning, our entitlement goes out the window. And everything that we see, everything that we we receive is grace. Even a trial, it's grace. Think of your expectations. You guys write wish lists for Christmas? I remember one year, I wrote a wish list, ten items. And I probably could list all ten of these items. And I remember thinking, you give your wish list to your family, your family gives you the gifts that are on the wish list, great. This weird like sense of, I know what I want, and I want you to get what I want you to get me. This is great, perfect, boom. I basically got what I wanted because of this wish list. And I remember opening presents that Christmas thinking, uh, did you not read the list? <laughs> um, I gave you a list. I gave you a list months in advance, and you're not giving me what I wanted you to give me. And slowly but surely, I got, I think, maybe five or six of the things that I wanted. And there was one thing that I wanted. I really wanted this one thing. And I remember thinking, opening my last gift, this is it. This is what I wanted. This is what I asked for. I opened it. I didn't get it. And I remember on Christmas Day of all times, just feeling cheated by my own family. Like, hang on one second. I wrote the wish list, and you didn't give me what I wanted. That's exactly what these workers are doing. Whoa, 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 hang on a second. We deserve more. Wait, I have graciously given you a gift. If I had taken my entitlement away and my expectations away, I would have said, thank you so much for spending money to get me anything. This is a gift. We should be more like the centurion who walks up to Jesus and says, I'm not even worthy for you to enter my house. Just say the word. I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. Number 10, finally, God is gracious and we should always celebrate his grace. The angels do in heaven. We should as well. Jesus asks these laborers through the master, do you begrudge my generosity? Is your eye evil because I am good? I have given a gracious gift to other people. I haven't treated you unfairly. I've given you more than you deserve, but I've also decided to give more than others deserve as well, and you are angry at me for doing that. We love it when God is generous to us. But boy, it bothers us when he's generous to others. When God gives you a gift and you just love whatever that gift is. Oh, God, thank you so much for this gift. This is amazing. You're so kind. You're so generous. And then you see somebody else get the gift and you just kind of go, hmm, 
I want that. You have one. Again, children do this so instinctively. They get angry when their sibling is playing with a toy that they don't even like. But they're, no, 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 I want that toy. That's mine. Wait, wait, you don't even like that toy. Yeah, but I want it. I don't want them to have it. Think about it. If I gave you three Musketeer bar, let's say that's your favorite candy bar, and I gave Sergio a little fun size. I don't know why it's called a fun size, because it's a really not fun size. But if I give him a fun size three Musketeers bar, he'd hey, thanks. That's awesome. How amazing. This is great. And then I get a king size three Musketeers bar, and I give it to Alec. Sergio goes, what gives? <laughs> what? what? So in one moment, he's happy and he's thankful. That's so generous of you. And then in the next, he would be ungrateful because I'm lavishing grace on somebody else. Sometimes we pray the prayer, Oh God, I just want you to give me what I deserve. Come on already, give me what I deserve. That's not a smart prayer to pray. Write down Psalm 73. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, My feet came to the point of stumbling when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And I thought, what's it, what's it all worth? Why am I even following you, God? And then he says, but then I remember. Read that passage. It's an amazing passage. We really like grace. We love it. Oh, we love grace, but we want it to be fair grace. <laughs> There's no such thing as that. If grace has to measure up to some calculation that we've invented, it's not grace at all. So instead, we should rejoice and exalt in the good gifts that God has given to us and to others all the time. Just be glorifying God and rejoicing in the grace that he's given. How do we wrap this all up? Which worker, as we conclude, do you most easily identify with? Which worker? Have you been working all day, as it were? Maybe you've been serving and ministering and nobody really seems to thank you or be grateful for your service. And you think, well, I've been serving all day long in the scorching heat and God just doesn't care. The reality is all of us are far more like the 11th hour worker than the early morning worker. And God's grace has been given to us apart from our merit. That's why we sing, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. I'm not going to work off the debt. So, this is my plea to us as a church. Instead of putting on the glasses of entitlement... Put on glasses of grace. Instead of putting on, I deserve, I've done, why don't I have? Put on the the glasses of, I don't deserve anything. I deserve hell, and anything that God has given to me is is a gift. Entitlement says, why am I in last place when I deserve to be in first? Grace says, why am I in first place when I deserve to be in last? So my question is, do you have an attitude of firstness? Well, I really am doing better than they are. I really am running harder than they are. I really am doing better work than they are. An attitude of firstness is antithetical to the attitude of the kingdom. What is the attitude of the kingdom? This is my prayer for us as a church family, that we would be humble, confident people, that those aren't at odds. We don't have to be wimpy people. We can be confident in the grace of Jesus Christ, but humble in our confidence who are wonderfully unimpressed by ourselves. Oh, if all of us could just be wonderfully unimpressed by ourselves. Humble, yet confident in the grace of God, who are wonderfully underimpressed by ourselves. Just unimpressed. 
you think highly of me? I have no idea why. I have no idea why. That would take off the glasses of entitlement. Don't be concerned about your rank. Don't be concerned about your fair share. Take off the goggles of entitlement and put on the glasses of grace. The reality is entitlement gives you an attitude of woe is me. Oh, the world's against me. I have been hurt so much by the world. They're against me. That is coming from an entitled heart. Now, granted, there are definitely injustices in the world. And I don't want to say that there aren't. But most of the things that we feel grieved about or we have been hurt by, we're only hurt because of our pride and because of our sense of entitlement. Grace gives us an attitude that says, man, I'm just being lavished by love. The world will look like a much less disastrous place when you put glasses of grace on. When you put glasses of entitlement on, everybody's out to get you. When you put glasses of grace on, you can just love and serve with no sense of entitlement whatsoever. And God himself will look a lot closer to the wonderful, gracious, and loving God he truly is. Father, we want to glory in your grace. Break us of our pride. Humble us to the dust. We are so prideful and so self-sufficient and so entitled. We don't deserve anything. We deserve hell. That's all we deserve. And you have graciously given us Jesus and all that comes with him. Every single blessing in the heavenly places. That is marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. So may we know that grace. May we come to understand that better for ourselves. And then may we bend that grace out to others. That there would be no sense of entitlement such that we would be so easily offended when people don't measure up to our expectations of the way that we deserve to be treated. May we be blown away by grace such that our only expectation is to love unconditionally till our last breath. And then when we get to heaven, we will hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You can rest now. But you're not resting in the deservings that you have earned You're resting in grace alone. God, teach us. Holy Spirit, convict us and change us. We pray in the name of our gracious Savior. Amen.